Well, we're glad to have Brother Neil Swatsky with us this morning, and Pastor Swatsky is a veteran pastor, pastored many, many years, and uh, we're so glad that he's going to come with his Perusia ministry of uh, prophecy and the Bible, and this morning we heard about Israel, we've got a really quick history of Israel. We didn't have a lot of time, but we had a good time learning about Israel in the past, the present, and the future. And we're looking forward to his ministry to us today. Brother Swatsky and his wife Carrie are with us today. And today is their wedding anniversary. One month today. One month today they've been married. So this is, they're on their honeymoon and they get to spend their first anniversary with me. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, preacher. God bless you. Amen. Yeah, I just call us the honeymooners. We're, uh, <clears throat> we're very excited, very excited about a lot of things. In fact, Pastor Fury, I was going to ask you if we could join your church. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's done. Uh, that was an amazing time together, worshiping the Lord and just stilling the heart and stirring the heart as well. Great music. Uh, long as I can remember Bethel Baptist, and that goes back into the early 70s, it's always been a singing church. And I'm glad that you are a singing church. It's a blessing, and I know that it ministered to so many hearts. And what a blessing it is. In fact, <clears throat> Pastor, I don't know if you know this or not, but Martin Luther taught his students, if you can't sing, then don't pastor a church. And I said, that would disqualify a whole lot of preachers, I'm afraid. But uh, you have a singing pastor here, and you have uh, his heart is in music. I, I know some pastors say, let's do away with the music. Let's just get to preaching. And I say, well, wait a minute. This, well, anyway, I should not take too much time with this. You're already convinced, and you don't need any more convincing. As he mentioned, <clears throat> I've developed a ministry, am developing a ministry called the Parousia Gospel Ministry. I asked a friend of mine who had been uh, chairman of deacons in a larger church for years. I said, I, I want to put a name to a ministry that I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing prophecy, uh, Israel in the prophetic word, and prophecy in general, uh, pre-mill, pre-millennial teaching for churches uh, that are so much in need of this. And he said, why don't you call it by some sort of a Greek name? He said, everybody likes it as something is called by Greek. You know, you drive by these universities and you have these strange letters all over the place. And those are their sororities and they name them after Greek. That makes you sound smart. And uh, so I said, okay, how about parousia gospel ministry? And that, that means the Lord's presence. It means the Lord is coming. The Lord will be here. And uh, so I like to preach about the coming of my Lord Jesus. I like to preach about his return, but there are so many things associated with his return. It isn't just that one day in glory he will take us up. It's, it's, it's a whole lot more in scripture. And so I do want you to join with me in praising the Lord today for his coming and for the gospel of Jesus Christ that prepares us for his coming. And like the pastor said, it is our... Uh, it is our one-month anniversary, just September 2nd. We were married in Regina. We headed off to Banff for a uh, brief honeymoon. But the honeymoon, I told her right up front, I told Carrie, I said, when bushels of kisses turn into pecks, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> so I said, just remember that. So you got to keep the bushels of kisses going. Do you hear that, guys? You hear that, gals? Okay. That's my little shot for marriage today. We will focus now on what I think, I personally think, but so do others with me, think that there are 490 years in history that are the most significant years of all. Most of you do not know what these 490 years are. I did not know them until uh, I was in seminary training and I had some very well-learned uh, well men that taught and I so much appreciate the training that I received and I developed from there on. <clears throat> you get the seed planted by expert teachers and then you let that seed grow and that has grown into a conviction about what the prophetic word is all about. And so I want to take this morning's message to talk to you 
about the 490 years in world history, the most significant years. The, the, the interesting part about these 490 years is that they are not finished. They had their beginning in 444 uh, BC, and here we are, 2022, and these 490 years have not yet completed. So how do we find these 490 years? You say, well, do we have to skip through the whole Bible to find these? And I say to you, no, you do not have to do that. You need to turn to Daniel chapter 9. So if you have a Bible with you today, please turn to Daniel chapter 9. In the future, I will be developing, I've for years and years used overhead projection and then PowerPoint and now proclaim, but I wasn't certain and I didn't have all the equipment to bring along. So another time we will bring it along so we can illustrate things a little bit more clearly. But uh, for today, we're just going to go by, go to the Bible, read with me, check what it says, and you will see these 490 years unfolding uh, so clearly, I hope. Sir Robert Anderson was an inspector with Scotland Yard back in the 1800s. He was also a student of the Bible, and he developed something that defined these 490 years, and every student who has ever studied the book of Daniel in depth has learned about Sir Robert Anderson. He has worked out a chart and did a phenomenal job. I had Dr. Harold Honer as the instructor who taught me the 490 years. He was an instructor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm not Dallas Theological Seminary guy, but he was an instructor from there. And he taught this. He had figured it out quite apart from what, uh, uh, what, what, uh, what the other gentleman had done. And so I said, this... Both of them are pretty much equal with the exception of a few little details. And so I'm not even going to bother you with those details because they're too sophisticated. But I just want you to realize that there are great minds that have discovered something so very important. And so when you go home today, you're going to say, what was that? Then if you go to Daniel 9 and you begin to reinvestigate and read again all of a sudden, the scales from your eyes will come off and you'll begin to see. But I want to tell you this, it'll come through study. It'll not come, if you've come this morning and if you parked your brain outside the door, you're not going to get this. You're going to have to put your brain into gear. You're going to have to just really think along because it's not complicated, but it is something that requires attention. If you're going to dream about lunch, you're going to miss this or if you're going to dream about anything else for that matter. The reason I say it'll take much study is because in the first part of Daniel chapter 9, we discover that Daniel knew that the Jews were to leave Persia any time now. He found out by the reading of the books. What books was he reading? He was reading the book of Jeremiah. And Daniel, looking at that, said, it looks to me from the study of what Jeremiah wrote that we're just about at the threshold of something very, very big. Daniel was a part of the captivity, although he had a significant amount of freedom as one of the hierarchies in the government because of his knowledge and faithfulness and God's plan in Daniel's life. But he said, by the reading of the books, that's how we learn. And so, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along. If you do not have one, you might want to watch this again. Apparently, it's being streamed, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, some friends in Newfoundland last night said, will this be streamed? And said, I have no idea, but I'm sure it will be. And so, for our friends in Newfoundland, I send my greetings as well and hope that you'll be blessed through this uh, as, as we are here. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 24 down to the end of the chapter. Seventy weeks. <clears throat> this is the key two words of all of this passage of Scripture. 
70 weeks. Okay, they don't mean what you think. That's why you need your thinking cap on. Because I want to change your thinking. 70 weeks in the Bible here is not 70 weeks like we know it. 70 weeks in the Bible is a series of seven years. These are called heptads. For those of you who know anything about the Hebrew. But he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks and threescore uh, two weeks and the street shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. A lot of complicated words here, but I just want you to get familiar with the passage of Scripture and not get bogged down with certain details here. See the big picture, and that is that he's talking here about 490 years. Seventy sevens. Seventy weeks times seven. That comes to 490 years. So that is the big thing that we're talking about here today. And the first thing that I direct your attention to is the purpose of these 490 years. What what is this about? What is to be accomplished in this time? The neatest package of scripture that you will find to give you information that defines what we're talking about is found in verse number 24. You're there in the scripture? There we read that first of all, the purpose of the 490 years is to finish the transgression. Now, transgression is the breaking of God's holy word. There's a second purpose, and that is to make an end of sins. Now, I have some people that are friends of mine who are amillennialists. I have some people who are friends of mine, sort of, who are preterists. They're not close friends because they don't like what I teach, but they're preterists. And they believe that everything was finished when Jesus came. It's all done, and there is no more. And prophecy is not to be taught, and just eliminate that from your programs, and do not teach that because there's no such thing as any more prophecy. Then what do they do with the sins that we commit? What do they do with the sins that people commit all the time? You see, the 490 years are given in order that there should be an end to sins. Do you see that? When men shall sin no more. Maybe what they do is just join the church of God where they don't sin anymore. But that's not realistic. Because you know that we sin. Some of us, hopefully, do not sin as much as others might. If you're saved, you're definitely controlled by the Spirit of God, and you do not walk openly in, in open sin. I hope you don't, because that's not what grace is about. Grace is about making us holy, like we sang about today. But the end of sins means is when there will be no more sin. 
What is your biggest problem in the world? What's your number one issue in the world? It is the matter of sin. We deal with that. We struggle with that. We confess it and we come to God with it. And we seek to find freedom from guilt and everything associated with because sin is a horrible, horrible blight on society. It is an insult to God. It is defying the holy and the righteousness of God. And I say to you that as we sit and stand here today, that sin has not yet come to an end. There's a third thing that we notice in the verse, and that is to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, on Friday, there was a big to-do on the media about Reconciliation Day in Canada. Apparently, we were unkind to some people some years ago. Actually, not us, but somebody else before us. And so we're kind of held to account what they did or whatever happened. But it was emphasized as National Reconciliation Day. Carey, the first missionary to India, at least the first prominent missionary to India, William Carey, had a ministry whereby he insisted that every single Saturday of the week and of the month, every Saturday of the month, I'm sorry, they would declare it as Reconciliation Day, that all of the workers that were on site working with them If there had been any fallout or any grievances, then on Saturday they would come together to make reconciliation so that these grievances did not continue. It's a really neat concept. Maybe some churches should work on that, to have reconciliation amongst us so that we're one in the spirit of what God wants us to do. But I want you to notice that the purpose of the 490 years, one of the six purposes was to make reconciliation for iniquity. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that you and I are at odds with God. We are defiant on God. We are sinners against the Lord God until we come to grips with our sin and receive forgiveness of sins and that we become reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we receive him, reconciliation takes place. Yesterday, you may not have wanted to pray to God, but now that you're reconciled to God, you want to talk to God. Yesterday, you may not have wanted to go to the house of God and hear the singing and the preaching and all that goes on. Today, you love to be here. I noticed some of you clapping this morning as the music was going on because it was so thrilling Because we have been reconciled to God. We love being with God. I don't know why somebody doesn't want to go to church. If a church is preaching reconciliation and if the church is preaching the gospel and if the church is singing the praises of God, why would you not want to be here? Why would you not want to attend everything that goes on in the house of God? It's a part of what reconciliation does for us. We're no longer strangers to God. We're no longer foreigners to God. We're no longer separated from him. We are now at one with him because of what Jesus did. But a part of the purpose of the 490 years was that the reconciliation could take place. There's another purpose, and that is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, for those who believe that there's nothing more to come beyond where we are, I want to ask you, are you satisfied with the level of righteousness in our land? Governor of California this past week put up signs all over America using a Bible verse quoting the words of our Lord Jesus that greater love hath no man than this, that we are to love one another, something to that extent. What was he promoting? Abortion. And he's promoting it with the words of Jesus, love one another, be kind to one another. Folks, there's no deeper blasphemy that has happened in our days than this. This is so blasphemous. So when someone says that everything is already done, are you satisfied with the righteousness today? 
Are you satisfied with all of these weird movements that are going on in the world today that lack definition from the scripture, in fact, that have absolutely no support in scripture? Are you satisfied with the level of righteousness? I say to you that we're living in a world of iniquity and a cesspool of sin. That's where we're living. And so when the scripture says that these 490 years will bring in everlasting righteousness, I say to you, I don't think that we are finished yet. I don't think it's done yet. To seal up the vision and prophecy, it's coming to the place where this will no longer be needed. And then finally, to anoint the most holy. Israel, as we mentioned in the first session today, is moving towards a very significant existence. The Temple Mount Institute that's been on the go for a number of years has designed a whole lot of things and artifacts that will be required for the new temple. There will be a temple built in Jerusalem again. And this is being furnished now, the altar that will be used outside of the Holy of Holies for the, for the sacrifices has already been built. It is ready to be transported by these gigantic helicopters that will pick it up and set it into the temple grounds once there is a temple. There is not now, but there will be. Just, I think, in the last week or two, a rancher from Texas sent five red heifers, red cows, that were flown into Haifa. These red cows were put into uh, quarantine for six days, as is required with any animal that's brought into Israel. And so they were brought in for quarantine. That quarantine period is over. Then these six red cows will be handed over or have been handed over to the significant rabbis who lead the worship in Israel and they will be examined ever so carefully to see if there's even one blemish. If there is one blemish in these, they will not be used for the sacrifice. But if they determine that, yes, these red heifers are pure, they are meet every qualification of the Levitical system and the book of Numbers, if they discover that, then they will believe that they have the red heifer but they probably don't because the red heifer needs to be born in Israel and these were not born in Israel. They were born in Texas and Texas is not Israel. But what I'm saying to you is all of this is moving that way, but if you look at Jerusalem today, would you classify Jerusalem as a holy city? We sing about it that way. One of my most favorite pieces of music, my wife plays it so beautifully, is the holy city. I learned it first in the 19, early 70s, and I heard a little Jewish man on his violin playing it, and I fell in love with that song. And when I heard Carrie playing it, I said to her, you must, you must play that. And she did, and what a beautiful piece of music. But we call it the holy city. It is that because it is God's city from from the beginning, Salem, all the way through, all the way through the kingdom, and then there will be a new Jerusalem. Uh, it will be the holy city, but it is not today. Today, it is Sodom and Gomorrah, says the book of Revelation. Why? Because they have not received the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have rejected the Messiah. Why? Because there is sin galore that exists in Jerusalem. It is not yet anointed as the most holy, but it will be anointed as the most holy. And we see, in fact, we will look at some of that tonight when we look at the greatness of the kingdom, where we see how the city has been, in fact, made holy. It will be set apart for holiness and righteousness and worship like no other city ever in the whole wide world. So did you notice that in verse 24? These are the six purposes of the 490 years. Now, let me look at the progression of the 490 years. How do they unfold? How does this all come together? I want you to know that weeks are weeks of years. One week or one heptad is seven years. I spoke in a church which is not uniquely premillennial, 
dispensational. And I spoke about the heptatic nature of the scriptures. You can go right to Genesis chapter 1 and you'll see seven, seven days. And you go to, uh, to another book, seven. You see another book in seven. You see sevens and sevens and sevens and sevens. And it is a heptatic book. It is full of sevens. Those of you who have a little bit more interest in studying some of these things, you will discover that and find out how many series of sevens there are actually in the scripture. It should not be without significance that something this major as we have in Daniel chapter 9 would use this very principle of the heptatic nature of the scripture, the sevens. We have the 77s in this case. And they were all encompassing for all of history, for all of time, and all of that is defined for us. And so we have these 69 weeks that are mentioned here in Daniel chapter 9 are 483 years. What is significant about the 483? It's not different. It's within the 490 years. So what we have here is we have the 483 years, the first seven or the 49 years were the rebuilding of historic Jerusalem in troublous times. Well, you know how the Arabians and some of the other nations would come and they would, uh, they would give Nehemiah and some of the builders trouble about rebuilding the walls and then rebuilding the city and re- putting it back together again after it had been demolished by Nebuchadnezzar and his forces. But these first 49 years have to do with the resettlement after the Jews return from their captivity and they come back to the land and then there are 62 weeks, that's 434 years, after the return from the captivity until the days of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25, all right? You will forget maybe what I say, but if you look at verse 25 now, you'll notice. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So what the 490 years definition is all about here, what Daniel sees, what the angel tells him is that until Messiah the Prince, who is that? Jesus the Christ. From the going forth of the commandment, 444 BC, when the king said to Nehemiah, to Ezra, to Joshua, to Zerubbabel, go and build Jerusalem. When that commandment was given and they were set free from the land of Persia, they came and resettled 483 years passed from that time. Remember, these are the 483 years where there was no prophet and no king in Israel. It was known as the silent years. They established a whole lot of series of things like the synagogues and various places to worship and to gather and so on, but they uh, didn't have what they needed to have. But until Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. Now I want you to see the pivotal point within the 490 years. What is the pivotal point? The pivotal point is in verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The Lord Jesus Christ would be cut off. Three, three and a half years, he ministered by miracles, by teaching, by loving, by caring. But the day came when Israel who should have received the Messiah was at the very base 
of asking the Roman authorities to put him to the cross. And when the Romans didn't want to do this, the Jewish priests cried out and said, Crucify him! Crucify him! We will not have him. He was cut off, but not for himself. Who was he cut off for? He was cut off for the very same men who stood there on the judicial places where these trials were going on, crying, crucify him, put him to death. He was dying for them. For the very same people that have fought against God from that time until today, he died for them. Jesus died for you. You were born not a Christian. You were born a fallen sinner. In sin hath my mother conceived me. And it is the purpose of our God to save you. It is his purpose to bring him on, bring you onto himself. He wants to make you a child of God. If you're not yet a child of God, let me say this to you. You have missed the entire purpose for living. There is no purpose. You could be a scientist that can send these ships over to the space where they go against the asteroids and try to destroy them and say, boy, I have a mighty important life. No, you don't. You may say, well, I have several billion dollars to my account and I have pretty much influence in this world. No, you don't. You have nothing at all if you don't have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is all and all and all and all that you need. There is nothing else that you need, but you need him. There is absolutely no peace, no satisfaction, no hope. There is no future for you without the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the sin's price for you. He was cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off for you. He was cut off for me. He was cut off for the world. The only begotten, righteous, holy Son of God gave himself so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. He gave himself, and this is the pivotal point of the 490 years. You see, they could not be fulfilled without this. Christ had to die according to the great program of God that would make all of this possible. And so he did die for us, but he rose again triumphantly. Thank God for that. We have the prophecy of the trials to come. We read again in verse 26, and the people of the prince that shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, pardon me, I read something wrong here. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. The prince that shall come. This now is not the Messiah. This is where some people get confused about this. You have the Messiah who would come, <coughs> but then you have the people of the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come after the Messiah are the Roman authorities. The people of the prince that shall come. By the way, have any of you ever heard, and you don't need to put your hand up, by the way, but have any of you ever heard that in the end times there will be the Assyrians that are going to lead in the Antichrist system? Have any of you heard that it will be the Muslim people that will do that? I want you to know this, that the people of the prince that shall come are the Romans, and it is a Roman person, whatever that means in the final end, that will be at the head of this world system, the Antichrist system. Because of Daniel chapter 2, you cannot have anybody else but a Roman doing it. You cannot have an Assyrian. You cannot have a Muslim. You cannot have 
anybody except that's connected to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire must be responsible for the coming of the Antichrist into the world. And that may be confusing to you, but that's the people of the prince that shall come. He will destroy the city. What did he do? In 70 AD, he marched into Jerusalem. His name was Titus. He was the general that was sent out by the Caesars in order that he might go and disrupt Jewish life. Jewish life was always a pain in the side to the Romans because of their demand for their way. Carrie and I had an experience before we were married. We stopped in Woodstock to fill up gasoline in our car, and I noticed that there was a little man there with a black cap on his head filling up his truck, and so I was curious as to who he was, and I said, by the way, does that little cap on your head, does that represent that you're a Jew? And very defensively, he said, yes. I said, oh, I said, I'm a friend. I said, I love the Jews. I said, absolutely. I said, I have nothing to say badly to you. I just wanted to know if you were Jewish. He said, well, I am Jewish. And I, he said, are you a Christian? I said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, I am. I love the Lord Jesus. And he said, well, then we have something in common. I said, what's that? He said, we're both fighting atheism. I didn't know we're fighting atheism. We believe in God. There's no atheism to fight. That's a bunch of foolish stuff. Uh, he said, we're fighting uh, immorality. I said, well, yeah, we do that. We teach a lot about moral living and moral standards and uprightness. We do a lot of that. But I said, our primary focus is the Lord Jesus. And he said, oh, we don't believe in that. You know, folks, that's how it has been. That's how it is now. I remember in, in Petersburg, Florida, we went through the museum and uh, we walked through the Holocaust description. Some of you have no doubt seen that. And there is a boxcar in that museum. It's eerie. I, I could not bring myself to put my hand on the boxcar because I knew what it represented. It, it represented Jews that were put in like, like herds of cattle into these small boxcars. And then they were taken down the railways over towards Auschwitz. And the outcome was horrendous. It was terrible. It was a black, black time in history. But they were, again, they were assaulted and they were molested and they were killed by the hands of godless and ruthless men. This is how it would be for them. This is how it will be. But folks, it will be much worse than it is now. In fact, when Jesus described what the future would be like, he said it would be unprecedented. You know what that means? Nothing like this ever has happened before. And that's yet ahead for them. That's ahead for the world. The rapture of the church, the glory of being able to be taken home to be with the Lord Jesus comes first. Thank God for that. All of that tribulation period is not for the church. Don't, mis don't misinterpret scripture. The church is not appointed to wrath. The church may be disciplined for various things and needs to be in today's world. There's no doubt about that. But the church is not given to wrath. Wrath will come upon a defiant world. And it's going to be a horrendous thing. Those people of the prince that shall come, they will bring all of this and there will be war until the end. Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars. Since February of this year, you turn the news on and you hear about multiple deaths in Ukraine. Uh, an unjustified and illegal war, according to news media. But yet, there is this ongoing battle. And then yesterday, the President of the United States uh, said to the Russian leader, he said, you, uh, you must not do any more of this and you must not use any nuclear force because if you do, uh, you won't like the outcome. We don't know what the outcome might be. But I tell you this much, that if they use nuclear weapons, which they probably won't do, but if they do and we retaliate with nuclear weapons, guess what? We've got a catastrophe 
not just rumors of wars, but a catastrophe. I think they're going to try to avoid that at this time. But those catastrophes will come. You will hear of wars, and you will hear of rumors of wars. But Jesus said that's only just the beginning. He said it's going to get much worse. What will get so much worse is when God's anger and God's wrath is unleashed, and he begins to judge the world. First, in tribulation time, it's a gathering of the nations, fighting amongst each other, the Russian war against Israel, and all of these things will take place. But when the wrath of God happens, that is when mankind will realize that now we're not just fighting each other. Now we have the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of righteousness, and the God of holiness. He is now angry at a world, and he is pouring out his vile judgment upon the world in such measures as the world has never imagined, never has seen, nor can we even begin to describe really what it's all about, unless you read Revelation in depth. So the prophecy of the trials to come, the people of the prince that will bring this in. But then I want you to notice something that, whether you have heard this or not, I do not know. I do remember a very good friend of mine who had been pastoring for a number of years, and when I taught this, he said, where did you learn that? Well, I said, I think I was told that by some teachers, but I said, as I read this, I said, it's kind of self-explanatory. I said, I, I didn't know that I needed to be told this, but he said, I've never heard this before. Uh, by the way, uh, he's a PhD, so it's not that he's unlearned, but I know that not all PhDs have heard everything. <laughs> None of us have heard everything. I was just talking to a gentleman here this morning. He said, there's so much more to learn. So what have we got here? The postponement of God's program. What does that mean? Let me say this to you. When Jesus was here and he walked among men, the kingdom of heaven should have come upon earth. We should not be here like we are. The kingdom should have come. But the coming of the kingdom was conditional on some things. And one of the things, of course, was that Israel would receive the Son of God who would come down out of heaven and become their king. But you see, they wanted to make him king without submitting to him. They wanted someone that would deliver them from the Roman authorities. They wanted someone that would liberate Israel. But they didn't want him to rule and to reign in their hearts. That was not what they desired. And so they rejected him and they crucified him. And the kingdom that would have come did not come. Now let me be clear on this. That was no surprise to God. He doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. You and I have to learn everything. God knows everything. It was no surprise. It was a surprise for us to see how the program of God unfolds, but it was no surprise to him because even before the foundations of the world were laid, he'd already determined what Jesus Christ would do for mankind. And so his program is very clear to him. It's not so clear to us sometimes, but very clear to him. But what I want you to notice is that the kingdom was postponed after 69 weeks or the 483 years. Okay, are you still with me? You have the 70 weeks. 69 of them were fulfilled when Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. So what do we do with this one week? What, what is this one week deal about? Remember, a week is seven years. I know some years ago, there was a gentleman that came through southern Ontario teaching in the churches about the pre-wrath idea about the rapture of the church. And it has been my contention that this gentleman, though brilliant and bright, does not understand the whole picture, does not understand Daniel chapter 9. He missed the point. He didn't get this. 
It is not three and a half years, which the pre-wrath teaches. It's a little less than three and a half. They're into the last part of the three and a half years. But it is seven years. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 27. Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for what? One week. Not seven days, but how long? Seven years. So when this personage comes on the scene, he wants to confirm an agreement. A gentleman wrote a nice thing about the pre-trib rapture and the coming kingdom, and he submitted it to me and asked if I would examine this to see if I would change anything in it, and I don't like to change too many things when people write these papers, but I said to him, I said, there's, there's one word that I would like you to change, and what's that? He said, I said, you said that this personage would come and make a covenant for seven years. He's not making a covenant, he is confirming a covenant. Oh, so what does that mean? Well, that means that the Abrahamic Accord the SALT Accord, all these treaties, all that have come together, plus whatever else happens from today on, somewheres along the line, the leaders of the world are going to be able to come to an agreement that there's going to be a peace for seven years. You know, they like to put years on their peace agreements. There will be peace for seven years. So when the Antichrist is ready to come on the scene, and God allows the Antichrist to come, he doesn't need to make this agreement. He doesn't have to come and try to get these world orders together. It's already been agreed upon, and he puts a signature to it and says, I agree, I confirm that this treaty is good and that Israel will have seven years of peace in the land. Hmm. Well, what does it say in the next part here? He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. You know what that means is that by the time seven, by the time three and a half years have been going on in the tribulation period when the Antichrist, the prince that shall come, will be in control of the world, <clears throat> there will already be a temple where they're going to be sacrificing. The red cow will be sacrificed for certain sins and then other critters will be sacrificed for other sins including chickens and turtle doves and everything else like that. In the Old Testament, the, 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 the various sheaves that will be waved, they'll do all of that as Leviticus and Numbers describe for us. But in the midst of it, after three and a half years are done, he comes into the temple and he puts a stop to the, te- to the worship. He says, no more of this. And he desecrates the temple just like Antiochus Epiphanes did back in the early times before Jesus when he walked into the temple of Jerusalem and dirtied it and defiled it. This man comes in and he comes into the temple and he said, there is no God but me. He said, you worship me and me only. This is the kind of anti-God, anti-Christ system that we're moving towards. You see, our world today has very little respect for God, very little respect for his word, really none to speak of. So the kingdom that would have come shall come, and we'll see the greatness of it. But what I want you to know is, that that which could have been, if Israel had accepted Jesus, did not because they refused to receive him. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you come to the place where you have accepted the Lord Jesus as the only answer from God for your life? Have you come to the place where you have humbly bowed your heart and your head and you said, Lord Jesus, 
Come into my heart and save me and make me a child of God. I want to be a part of your great program that's going on. I want to be a part of the redeemed. I want to be a part of the saved people of the world. But you can't be until you ask the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. It doesn't matter what your sins are, whether they're few or whether they're many. That makes no difference. Jesus died for you. And if you think you have never sinned, examine yourself again and realize that Christ died for sinners. And redemption is only for sinners. So if you're going to be in heaven one day, it'll be because you have repented and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life and to make you a child of God. And I'll tell you how the 490 years finished tonight. And it's exciting. Pastor, I'm going to ask you to come and to close the service, and may God bless you as you do so. Let's stand this morning. Let's bow and our eyes closed. If God spoke to your heart, the altar is open even now, but maybe there's one here tonight that doesn't know, or this morning doesn't know Jesus Christ. We'd like to help you if we could. Is there one that say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. If the Lord were to come or if I were to die today, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. Would you slip up your hand and let me help you today? Is there one? I'm not going to embarrass you. I won't call your name. But if there's somebody we could help, we'll show you what the Bible says, not some personal idea or some piece of literature. We'll show you what God's holy word says about how you can know that you have eternal life. I once knocked on the door of a Catholic lady and I asked her if she knew she was saved. She said, can you possibly know that? And I said, 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto them that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Have in the present tense. You can know it for sure today. So one would say, Pastor, I'm not sure. Let us help you today. Don't leave here without knowing for sure. One thing the study of prophecy helps us do is, is to see that God's plan is unfolding right before our eyes. And that includes some of the things we read about in Revelation. There's, there is a real lake of fire, a real place called hell. And whosoever is not found written in the Lamb's book of life shall be cast in the lake of fire. I'm not trying to scare you. If I could, I would into trusting Christ. But do you know Jesus today? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, just slip up your hand. Let us help you today. Is there one?